Part 12, Section 1 of The Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy. On the afternoon of the day following, he sat in the smoking room with a prayer book in his hand and a frown on his forehead, reading the marriage service. The book had been effectively designed for not spoiling the figure when carried in a pocket, but this did not matter, for even if he could have read the words, he would not have known what they had meant. Seeing that he was thinking of how he could make a certain petition to a certain person, sitting just behind a large brew with a sliding top, examining artificial flies, he fixed at last upon this form. Gordy! Why Gordy? No one quite knew now. The book is his name was George, or by way of corruption from Guardian. When Sis has gone, it'll be rather awful, won't it? Not a bit. Mr Heathley was a man of perhaps sixty-four, if indeed Guardians have ages. And like a doctor, rather than a squire, his face square and puffy, his eyes always half-closed, and his curly mouth eating bluntly of that refined coarseness peculiar to people of old family. But it will, you know. Well, supposing it is. I only wondered if you'd mind asking Mr. and Mrs. Stormer to come here for a little. They were awfully kind to me out there. Strange man and woman, my dear fellow. Mr. Stormer likes fishing. He does? And what does she like? Very grateful that his back was turned, the boy said. I don't know. Anything. She's awfully nice. Ah, pretty? He answered faintly. I don't know what you call pretty, Gordy. He felt rather than saw his guardian scrutinising him with those half-closed eyes under the gouty lids. All right, do as you like. Have him here and have it done with, by all means. Did his heart jump? Not quite, but he felt warm and happy, and he said, Thanks awfully, Gordy. It's most frightfully decent of you. And he turned again to the marriage service. He could make out some of it. In places it seemed to him quite fine, and in other places queer. About obeying, for instance. If you loved anybody, it seemed rotten to expect them to obey you. If you loved them, and they loved you, there couldn't ever be any question of obeying, because you'd both do the things always of your own accord. And if they didn't love you, or you them, then, oh, then it'd be simply too disgusting for anything to go on living with a person you didn't love, or who didn't love you. But of course, she didn't love his tutor. Had she once, those bright doubting eyes, that citrusly satric mouth came very clearly up before him. You could not love them, and yet he was really very decent. A feeling as of pity, almost of affection, rose in him for his remote tutor. It was queer to feel so, since the last time they had talked together, out there on the terrace, he had not felt at all like that. The noise of the brew tops sliding down aroused him. Mr. Heathley was closing in the remains of the artificial flies. That meant he would be going out to fish. And the moment he heard the doors shut, Mark sprang up, slid back the barrow top, and began to write his letter. It was hard work. Dear Mrs. Stormer, my guardian wishes me to beg you and Mrs. Stormer to pay us a visit as soon as you come back from the Tyrol. Please say, Mr. Stormer, that only the very best fishermen, like him, can catch our trout, the rest catch our trees. This is me catching our trees. Here followed a sketch. My sister is going to be married tomorrow, and it will be disgusting afterwards unless you come. So do come, please, and with my very best 
Greetings. I am your humble servant, Master Lennon. When he had stamped his production and dropped it in the letterbox, he had the oddest feeling, as if he had been let out of school. So I had to rush about, to frolic. What should he do? Sis, of course, would be busy. They were all busy about the wedding. He would go and saddle a bolero and jump him in the park. Or should he go down along the river and watch the jays? Both seemed lonely occupations, and he stood in the window, dejected. At the age of five, walking with his nurse, he had been overheard remarking, Nurse, I want to eat a biscuit, all the way. I want to eat a biscuit, and it was still rather so with him, perhaps. All the way he'd wanted to eat a biscuit. He bethought him, then, of his modelling, and went out to the little empty greenhouse where he kept his masterpieces. They seemed to him now quite horrible, and two of them, the sheep and the turkey, he marked out for summary destruction. The idea occurred to him that he might try and model that hawk escaping with the little rabbit. When he tried, no nice feelings came, and flinging the things down, he went out. He ran along the unweeded path to the tennis ground. Lawn tennis was then just coming in. The grass looked very rough, but then everything about the little manor house was left rather wild. And anyhow, why? No one quite knew, and nobody seemed to mind. He stood there scrutinising the conditions of the ground. A sound of humming came to his ears. He got up on the wall. There was Sylvia, sitting in the field, making a wreath of honeysuckle. He stood very quiet and listened. She looked pretty, lost in her tune. Then he slid down off the wall and said gently, Hello. She looked round at him, her eyes very wide open. Your voice is jolly, Sylvia. Oh, no. It is. Come and climb a tree. Where? In the park, of course. There were some time selecting the tree, many being too easy for him and many too hard for her. But one was found at last. An oak of great age and frequented by rocks. Then, insisting that she must be roped to him, he departed to the house for some blind cord. The climb began at four o'clock, named by him the ascent of Simone della Pala. He led the momentous journey, taking a hitch of blind cord round a branch before he permitted her to move. Two or three times he was obliged to make the cord fast and return to help her, for she was not an expert. Her arms seemed soft and she was inclined to straddle instead of trusting to one foot, but at last they were settled, streaking indeed with moss, on the top branch but two. They rested there, silent, listening to the rocks smoothing an outraged dignity. Save for this slowly subsiding demonstration, he was marvellously peaceful and remote up there, halfway to a blue sky thinly veiled from them by the crinkled brown-green leaves. The peculiar dry moss smell of an oak tree was disturbed into the air by the least motion of their feet and hands against the bark. They could hardly see the ground, and all around are the gnarled trees bared off any view. He said, If we stay up here till it's dark, we might see owls. Oh no, owls are horrible. What? They're lovely, especially the white ones. I can't stand their eyes, and they squeak so when they're hunting. Oh, that's so jolly, and their eyes are beautiful. They're always catching mice and little chickens, all sorts of little things. But they don't mean to. They only want them to eat. Don't you think things are jolly at night? She slipped her arm in his, 
No, I don't like the dark. Why not? It's splendid when things are mysterious. He dwelled lovingly on that word. I don't like mysterious things. They frighten you. Oh, Sylvia. No, I like early morning, especially in spring, when it's beginning to get leafy. Well, of course. She was leaning against him, for safety. Just a little. And stretching out his arm, he took good hold of a branch to make her back for her. There was a silence, and he said, If you could only have one tree, which would you have? Not oaks, limes, no, birches. What would you have? He pondered. There were so many trees that were perfect. Birches and limes, of course, but beeches and cypresses, and yews, and cedars, and holm oaks, almost, and plane trees. Then he said suddenly, Pines, I mean the big ones with reddish stems and branches, pretty high up. Why? Again he pondered. It was very important to explain exactly why. His feelings about everything were concerned in this. And while he mused, she gazed at him, as if surprised to see anyone thinking so deeply. But at last he said, Except independent and dignified, never quite cold, the branches seem so brood, but chiefly because they're the ones, I mean, are generally out of common where you find them. You know, just one or two, strong and dark, standing out against the sky. They're too dark. It occurred to him suddenly that he had forgotten larches. They, of course, could be heavenly. When he lay under them and looked up at the sky, as he had that afternoon out there, then he heard her say, If I could only have one flower, I should have lilies of the valley, the small ones that grow wild and smell so jolly. He had a swift vision of another flower, dark, very different, and was silent. What would you have, Mark? Her voice sounded a little hurt. You are thinking of one, aren't you? He said honestly. Yes, I am. Which? It's dark too. You wouldn't care for it a bit. How do you know? A clove carnation. But I do like it. Only not very much. He nodded solemnly. I knew you wouldn't. Then a silence fell between them. She had ceased to lean against him, and he missed the cosy friendliness of it. Now that their voices and the cooings of the rooks had ceased, there was nothing heard but the dry rustle of the leaves, and the plaintive cry of a buzzard hawk hunting over the little tor across the river. There were nearly always two up there, quartering the sky. To the boy it was lonely, that silence, like nature talking to you. Nature always talks in silences. The birds, the beasts, the insects, only really showed themselves when you were still. You had to be awfully quiet too, for flowers and plants, otherwise you couldn't see the real, jolly, separate life there was in them. Even the boulders down there, that old godden, thought had been washed up by the flood, never showed you what queer shapes they had, unless you feel close to them, unless you were thinking of nothing else. Sylvia, after all, was better in that way than he had expected. She could keep quiet, he thought girls hopeless. She was gentle, and was rather joy to watch her. Through the leaves there came a faint, far tinkle of a tea bell. She said, we must get down. It was much too jolly to go, really, but if she wanted her tea, girls always wanted tea. And twisting the cord carefully round the branch, he began to superintend her descent. About to follow, he heard a cry. Oh, Mark, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. I can't reach you with my foot. 
from swinging, and he saw that she was swinging by her hands and the cord. Let go, drop onto the branch, the cord will hold you straight till you grab the trunk. Her voice mounted piteously. I can't, I really can't, I should slip. He tied the cord and slid hastily to the branch below her. Then, bracing himself against the tree, he clutched her round the waist and knees. But the taut cord held her up, and she would not come to anchor. He could not hold her and untie the cord, which was fast round her waist. If he let go with one hand and got out his knife, he would never be able to cut and hold her at the same time. For a moment he thought that he had better climb up again and slack off the cord. But he could see by her face that she was getting frightened. He could feel it by the quivering of her body. If I heave you up, he said, can you get hold again above? And without waiting for an answer, he heaved. She caught hold frantically. Hold on for just a second. She did not answer. But he saw that her face had gone very white. He snatched out his knife and cut the cord. She clung just for that moment, then came loose into his arms, and he hauled her to him against the trunk. Safe there, she buried her face on his shoulder. He began to murmur to her and smooth her softly, and quite a feeling of its being his business to smooth her like this, to protect her. He knew she was crying, but she let no sound escape, and he was very careful not to show that he knew, for fear she should feel ashamed. He wondered if he ought to kiss her, at last, he did, on the top of the head, very gently. Then she put up her face and said she was a beast, and he kissed on the eyebrow. After that, she seemed all right, and very gingerly they descended to the ground, where shadows were beginning to lengthen over the fern, and the sun to slant into their eyes. End of section 12 from The Dark Flower Recorded by Oscar